Okay, so when we left on Wednesday, we were talking about transplantation, talking about the ability of T cells to be able to recognize the graft itself, talking about trying to stop the immune system of the recipient to be able to recognize the graft, and looking at a lot of different mechanisms by which that was going to happen. When we left, we were just going to start talking about a, a common phenomena that's called graft versus host disease, or GHVD. And in graft versus host disease, as its name implies, the graft cells, or the cells that are being transplanted into the recipient, could possibly mount a rejection response against the host itself. So it's not the host trying to get rid of the graft, it's the graft trying to get rid of the host. Same mechanism is going to be at work. The graft T helper cells are going to turn into CTL cells. And it's going to arise only after, as you could well imagine, only after extreme suppression of the host immune system in preparation for the transplant itself. Right? Before the transplant is going to take place, we're usually going to give the patient, the recipient, some, some drugs to be able to turn off or to immunosuppress the host immune system. In some cases, right, it takes a lot of drug to be able to do those. So most of the time in graft versus host disease, you're going to see it in a bone marrow transplantation. So about 50 to 70% of all bone marrow transplants are going to result in graft versus host disease. Because if we're going to be able to transplant bone marrow, we're basically going to bring a new immune system into the recipient itself. So there's two types of graft versus host disease. There's acute graft versus host disease, and this is going to involve, as you could imagine, an, an inflammatory reaction in places like the skin or the liver or the gastrointestinal tract, wherever right, these cells are going to be able to start to congregate. So anywhere along the mucosa or anywhere along places where, the, uh, where hematopoiesis is taking place, this can, can uh, take place. Or, if we don't pick it up in time, it's going to turn from acute to a chronic sort of a disease, and then this is going to result in a lot more damage itself, like right, hemorrhage of the gastrointestinal tract or liver failure itself. So all these different consequences can take place themselves. The other sort of thing, and it, it's... I always think that we should spend more time with this, the ultimate transplant or the ultimate rejection phenomena, and that's pregnancy. Right? So think about what's taking place. So inside right, is a developing fetus, which is basically foreign tissue. It's an entire new organism, basically. Right? So this foreign tissue, it's an allograft, and there are numerous things that are going to take place to prevent the mother's immune system from rejecting it. And a lot of sort of information, a lot of studies have been going in to look at the trophoblast. <clears throat> and the trophoblast is a very specialized group of cells. It's basically the outer layer of the placenta. And this seems to be the major barrier to the maternal immune system. So the trophoblast itself, right, as the, as the egg is developing, once it in, uh, implants into the endometrium, 
Then we're going to start to, the, the trophoblast itself. Those are the cells that are going to go out, and those are the cells that are going to come into contact. It is these cells from which the umbilical cord will, will eventually uh, emerge. And this is going to be the way in which the fetus is going to be nourished and the way we're going to get rid of waste products from the fetus itself. So once this implantation takes place, it is these cells of the trophoblast that are the guardians against the maternal immune system. So the trophoblast itself doesn't express any MHC molecules. Right? This is one of those specialized cells. We said that there's only a couple of these specialized cells in the body that don't express MHC molecules. This is one of them. So there's going to be no way in which the NK cell or the CTL cells are going to be able to interact. But Right? We already know that downregulation of MHC molecules is one of the, of, the, of the trumpets that are going to go off to alert the immune system that something's wrong. So we have to be able to take care of that. <clears throat> and we're going to do that by having unique MHC molecules. <clears throat> and the trophoblast expresses a unique MHC molecule unto itself. It's HLA-G. <clears throat> and HLA-G is there so it can bind to those NK inhibitory receptors and inhibit NK cell killing. Right? If we're, if we're going to down-regulate the amount of MHC molecules, that's going to be a signal for the NK cells that something is taking place and a signal for the CTL cells that something's going to be able to take place. And the other thing that the trophoblast is going to do is it secretes almost, exclusive, almost exclusively inhibitory cytokines things like TGF-beta and IL-10 that are there to specifically suppress T helper cell and more specifically Th1 cells so that Th1 cells aren't going to be involved at all in recognition of right, this developing fetus itself which is protected by the trophoblast. Then there's a whole bunch of other <clears throat> proteins that are going to be released other hormones that the endocrine system is going to be able to release and they're going to be able to maybe enhance Th2 responses which are again turning off cellular responses, turning off that Th1 activated response and this seems to have some protection for the fetus itself. Okay. So this is the ultimate transplant as we need to talk about them. Alright, so that should have been Wednesday. So, yik. here we come for Friday. And in Friday, right, today we're going to talk about just infectious diseases in general. Just a way to sort of put everything together and talk about some of the premier diseases that are on the planet. Right? Some of the, the most right, sort of activity that the immune system is going to have to be able to deal with from pathogens that are on, on the planet itself. Okay. So in Western countries, we don't think so much about it. Right? We don't think so much about real bad infectious diseases. Right? It's cold outside. We're here in our nice heated building. We've come here in heated cars, be they automobiles or subway trains. Right? We don't have to worry so much about going out Maybe some people are going to leave this class today. Maybe they're going to go to neuro. Maybe they're hungry. Maybe they're going to go over to the student center. A whole lot of different food you can go buy at the student center. 
They'll only be limited by what you feel like eating today. Might be limited by how expensive it may be, but I don't. They try to make the meals pretty inexpensive here, although sometimes they don't. On the way over there, you could stop at a drinking fountain, or a bubbler as it's known, get some nice fresh water. If you need to, you can stop in the restroom, take care of whatever you need to take care of in the restroom, and you don't have to worry about that anymore. Right? So in Western countries, vaccines, drugs, a, a, a different standard of living, we don't think so much about what, uh, infectious diseases themselves because we can base, we can, well, for, the, for the, as much as we can, we can, try to, we can try to control the mortality that's going to be caused by infectious diseases. But in poorer countries and other places in the world, infectious diseases are the leading cause of death on the planet. You could, you know, you could talk about malnutrition, but that has other sort of, you know, sort of correlates with infectious diseases themselves. So each year, about 600 million people across the planet are going to be infected with a tropical disease or some sort of an infectious disease. And there's going to be greater than 20 million deaths, right, by the end of the year itself. So in terms of, you know, we can look at all causes of death across the planet. Right? We in the, in, the, in the United States, we're talking, we right? think about cancer, we think about cardiovascular diseases based on you know, this, this varied diet that we can participate in as we sit on our couches and watch television all day. Right? So cardiovascular diseases are there, but infectious diseases are a major sort of slice to this pie itself. So this is the number of deaths that are going to take place. So respiratory infections, diarrheal diseases, tuberculosis, childhood disease, malaria, meningitis, hepatitis, parasites, right? Other sort of things. We've already talked about AIDS being a major cause. These are all infectious diseases, right? We don't think so much about some of these in the, in the United States, but the rest of the world has to be able to deal with these infectious diseases, right, every single day. So in general, we're going to have four major types of pathogens. And we've been talking about these during the course of the semester. We can have a virus, and you know, these are all sort of like dictionary definitions, 25 cent definitions of taking place. So a virus, a submicroscopic parasite, it's a filterable agent. Right? We talked about a nucleic acid surrounded by a protein core. It's probably going to have some sort of lipid bilayer surrounding it. Bacteria. All living organisms that are prokaryotic cells. Parasites. Parasites are either going to be unicellular eukaryotic organisms that are going to be protista. And protista are animals that can do everything they need to do in a single cell. And multicellular worms are another sort of an example of a parasite. Or we could have fungal infections. Right? And fungus a separate kingdom of eukaryotes, right, if you think about five kingdoms. So fungi are a, a, one of the fifth kingdoms whose cell wall contains chitin. That's the definition of fungi. And that's opposed to plants whose cell wall contains mostly cellulose. So let's sort of step through all four of these sort of organisms themselves. So viral infections, we talked a little bit about viral infections. They're going to be neutralizable. 
by antibody molecules. So antibodies are going to be able to bind to viral cell surface proteins. That's going to be able to coat the protein and maybe some sort of complement activation is going to be able to be incorporated into destroying the virus itself. But more importantly, probably what's going to be able to take place as antibody molecules bind to the virus is it's going to prevent the virus, because now the virus itself will be coated in antibodies, it's going to be able to it's preventing the virus from binding to the receptor it needs to bind to on whatever sort of cell it needs to bind to, to be able to enter that cell. It's, it's as if it's coated in some sort of wrapping paper, right? It's not going to be able to recognize the receptor it needs to bind to to be able to be incorporated or incorporate itself into the cell that it needs to be able to infect. And we talked a lot about, right, cell-mediated mechanisms like CTL cells and NK cells. So this is the most of, this is the, the major sort of ways, the two ways that we're going to be able to defend ourselves against the virus itself. So if we want to talk about a representative virus, one of the most studies is influenza. So influenza is a viral infection. It's also called the flu. And it's not the flu that we all know. It infects the upper respiratory tract right, and other major uh, sort of airways of humans and pigs and birds. So a lot of times you don't feel so good. Maybe you'll be in bed for 24 hours. You feel a little run down. Somebody says, oh, how are you feeling? Oh, I think I had the flu. Fine, that's the flu, right? That's a generic sort of a term. I had a cold, I didn't feel so good, I had a sore throat, right? 24 to 48 hours later, you're probably okay. That's not influenza. Influenza, when you get influenza, when you get the flu, you know you've had the flu. Knocks you out for about a week. You don't want to get out of bed. All you want to do is sleep, right? All those sort of systemic sort of inflammatory things that we talked about when we talked about inflammation, right? You just want to rest. You just want to sleep. You're going to have a fever. You're not going to feel like eating. If you're not prepared enough, it can kill you. So the flu or influenza, we'll call it influenza from now on, right? We're going to substitute the word flu with influenza is going to be responsible for some of the worst pandemics. And a pandemic is a worldwide epidemic. An epidemic is just in a, in a localized regional sort of place. A pandemic is worldwide. And these days, having a pandemic is a lot easier than it used to be in the, in the good old days when we used to have to sail across the ocean, right? And it would take months to sail across the ocean or we would have to get on our horses or wherever we're going and it would take weeks to get to a different city. Right? We've all seen those movies, right? What was that Matt Damon movie? Contagion, right? Somebody gets on a plane, Four hours later, they're in a new place. They've infected every single person on that plane. Everybody gets off that plane, and they head off into different directions, and some of those people get onto different planes, so they infect everybody in that, right? We've all seen those nightmare scenarios, right? If we're not watching zombie movies, we're watching pandemic movies. Right? So, 
1918 to 1919, Spanish flu. 20 million people died from the Spanish flu. It was happening during World War I. It's called the Spanish flu because it appears that it, it came from Spain itself. It killed a lot of people across the planet, and then it just disappeared. We'll talk about why it probably disappeared, but it probably involves some sort of mutation. In terms of influenza, there are three basic types of influenza, strain A, B, and C, and it's going to be distinguished, or these individual strains are distinguished by differences in their nucleoproteins and also on certain envelope proteins, two of the major ones being neuraminidase, or NA, and hemagglutinin, or HA. It is this A strain that is most significant concern for us. It's the one that infects us. It's the one that infects people themselves. There are about 15 different sear types or subtypes of neuraminidase or hemagglutinin itself among all the influenza A viruses. So this is a little bit different, but you know, sort of the makeup of the virus itself is just like we talked about with HIV. We have a nuclear caspid only here. The only thing that's carried inside the caspid, right, is going to be DNA. When we talked about the retrovirus, HIV, right, human immunodeficiency virus, it was carrying RNA copies and a reverse transcriptase. For all other viruses, we're carrying just DNA itself. And again, the coat on the surface is our cell membranes, right, the lipid bilayer as it breaks out. So, we have either the neuraminidase or the hemagglutinin on the surface, plus, this isn't showing it, but there are probably other cells, uh, host proteins on the surface, right, as these, as these cells sort of bud out, this is what's going to be able to come with them. Right? We've all known, right, about swine flu, that was the big one that we probably all lived through, right? We probably all know, remember sort of avian flu again, right? We were all going to die from avian flu. Not even piglet was going to be protected from swine flu itself. Okay. So if we're talking about the flu itself, if we're talking about influenza, one of the major features of influenza, as we probably all know, is going to be its variability. The virus itself can change its surface antigens so completely that an immune response to the virus that causes an epidemic can be useless during subsequent epidemics themselves. And all these are going to involve changes in the hemagglutination and the neuraminidase itself. These are the things that are going to be able to shift around. So the two things that are going to be able to take place are called antigenic drift. And antigenic drift is a series of point mutations that are going to change the hemagglutination and the neuraminidase. I should really stop for a second here and say, people are probably looking at the, at the PowerPoints that they downloaded and going, what the heck, this is nothing. Sorry, changed them all yesterday and put them onto, <laughs> so they're, they're on Blackboard, right, but I changed them all yesterday. Anyway, this, they sort of run, the, run the, what, what basically is running through probably the notes you're looking at right now. Anyway, so this antigenic drift is what's going to happen during an infection, right? So if we look at antigenic drift, if the virus itself was being recognized by antibodies that the host has generated, and again, 
we're talking about the ability to stop the virus from binding to a cell if we interfere with this neuraminidase and this hemagglutinin that need to be able to recognize receptors on the surface, we're going to prevent the virus from binding to that host cell. Right? The same way, right, in terms of this antigenic drift, we're going to be able to right, sort of mask by these individual point mutations or these random point mutations, we're going to stop the ability of the immune system from recognizing us and that's going to allow us now to be able to still bind to the host itself. We talked the same thing, right, about all the ability of the HIV virus to basically do the same thing as well, right? Not so specific as antigenic drift because we're not really quite sure how the HIV virus does it, but influenza, this is where antigenic drift was first found, right, where people were first starting to realize what the virus was capable of undergoing in, right, the generation time that's going to take place from, right, recognizing a cell and becoming a viral factory until the virus comes out of that cell again, right, so this can happen very quickly, antigenic drift itself. And then antigenic drift is also related to antigenic shift. Right, so now we're going to shift them. Instead of drifting, we're going to get this abrupt change, right? A sudden appearance of a new subtype of a virus whose hemagglutin and, and neuraminidase are substantially different from the virus responsible for a previous epidemic. It's as if we have to face an entire new virus. Even though it's an influenza, Right? We have to come into contact with almost a new virus again due to antigenic shift. So, right? we could get human influenza and swine influenza. We'll talk about how this is going to be able to take place. Different pieces can recombine and we're basically making a whole new virus itself, a whole new organism. By a whole bunch of different mechanisms. If this was a course in virology, we would probably spend several weeks talking about this. But just like we spent several seconds talking about secondary messengers, right, we don't have time to talk about virology itself. So that's all the time we can sort of devote towards this. If you look at antigenic shifts themselves, we've been able to track, right, the ability of, right, these viruses to infect people worldwide. So if anybody was old enough, right, to be involved in the Hong Kong flu, or to be in, in, uh, uh, with the Singapore flu. I sort of lived through the Hong Kong flu. I don't think I ever got the Hong Kong flu, right? But we've had a whole bunch of these waves of epidemics that have come through. And not just for humans, but for pigs and horses and birds as well. We can find these epidemics. We can find mass mortalities of other animals based on influenza itself. So, if we're talking about antigenic shift, right, if we're talking about the ability of these viruses to shift, there's a functional barrier, right, to infection of people with an avian influenza virus and vice versa, right, with bird viruses. So, bird viruses can't take place. And the barrier, the barrier of this, right, is the fact that influenza viruses use different receptors expressed on bird cells and human viruses use different receptors that are expressed on the human respiratory tract. So that's why we aren't sort of infected very much with 
avian viruses or avian influenza, or as it's called, bird flu. Although we can, and that was one of the major problems that took, took right, public health officials to sort of sound the alarm. Not so much during swine flu, right? Swine flu was what, two years ago? But during bird flu, right? So instead of swine influenza, so we're, again, we're going to call it flu, so we're sort of jumping back and forth. But everything we're talking about today is influenza. So when an outbreak of avian influenza took place in Southeast Asia, right? public health officials got really, really busy, really, really worried, because it looked as if the avian virus jumped directly to humans. Right? And avian viruses are a little more deadly, so people were very worried about that. So they sort of sounded the alarm about this outbreak that was taking place in Southeast Asia. Nothing developed from it, right? but it's the old, right, the boy who cried wolf syndrome. So if a, if a public health service sort of goes out and says, oh, we got a problem here, you know, we got to protect people, we got to do things, and then nothing develops, what do we all do? We all go, again, you're telling this us again? And this happens to us all the time. Right? What, happens to, what happened to all our friends about a month ago now? Ooh, a hurricane's coming up the coast, it's going to be a bad one. You better not stay on your beach houses in New Jersey. You better get out of low-level sort of beaches on Long Island in New York and what everybody do. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. You hype it up just like the great blizzard we were supposed to have last year. Nothing happened. So what did people do? People stayed in their houses. People went, yeah, okay, I'll ride this one out. I'll bring my umbrella with me. And, you know, when the rain stops, I'll go about my business. Only this time, right, it was a different sort of a story. So that's what public health and public safety people have to, have to be able to deal with, right? They have to know when to raise the alarm and know when they're not to raise the alarm. But right, it's going to be a time difference. If you raise the alarm too quickly and then nothing takes place, right, there must be a, some sort of word or a phrase in sociology that sort of describes right, whatever human, you know, sort of, happens in humans when the alarm is raised and people don't heed the alarm or when they do and then they don't. I don't know, maybe it's called alarm exhaustion or something, right? We're always told, right? When you watch the news, they're always hyping up storms these days, right? They'll start talking about some sort of nor'easter that's coming to Boston a week before it takes place. And then even when it's taking place, right, they're going to they're gonna devote an entire day Right? 24 hours, they're going to have their reporters out on the field. Okay, Jill, we just talked to you 10 minutes ago. What's changed in the last 10 minutes? Well, nothing. Right? But they've got to say something. They've got to try to sell newspapers. Right? So this is what's, what, the, what, the, what the problem with sort of doing these things is all about. But right, if bird flu ever is able to jump to humans, we're going to have a problem. So basically, humans can't be infected with bird influenza. Pigs, on the other hand, our friends the pigs, on the other hand, right, they can express both avian and human-type receptors. So they can be infected with an avian virus, a human virus, and also a slime, uh, also, uh, yeah, slime, <laughs> a swine virus. So pigs, right, serve as the host, basically called 
mixing vessels, so the pigs themselves, in which avian virus can adapt to replication in mammals. So that's sort of the, the, the tie-in between birds and pigs and people. Birds can infect people, people can infect birds, birds can infect pigs, pigs can infect people. So that's sort of the tie-in all together. So if you look at the ability of these things to be able to take place, right? so the birds are going to develop influenza. A lot of their genetic material can recombine right, to make sort of antigenic shifts. When this virus is infecting birds, it can also infect a pig, and then that pig can come back and it can also infect, infect the human themselves. So in areas in the world where there's a lot of close contact, between birds and humans and, and, and pigs themselves, you can have influenza outbreaks taking place. And a lot of the places and the major places where influenza is going to develop and then circulate in, in the world itself is happening in Southeast Asia. Right? So that's where all of these things are going to be able to take place. That's where all of these different influenza strains are going to be able to be produced and then start to make their way out into the world to infect people. So all over the news, right, this past week, right, they raised the alarm. Flu season is here. What they really mean to say is influenza season is here. Right, so we're going to be driving down the road today or yesterday, wherever it was. You're going to drive by CVS. You're going to drive by Walgreens. Everybody has their sign out front. Come in and get your flu shot. Right, this is it. This is the official start of flu season. And right, if you read the paper two days ago, it looks like it's going to be a bad flu season. The reason it's going to be a bad flu season is because right, we probably haven't right, experienced any of these subtypes. And these subtypes constantly switch around. Right? So we go from H-O-N-1 to H-1-N-1, H-2-N-2, H-1-N-1, H-1-H-N-2, blah, 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 blah. Right? So we probably haven't been exposed for a long time to any of these subtypes. Right? So it's as if a new infectious disease is going to be able to infect us. As it turns out, right, people who are exposed to the Hong Kong flu were probably going to be protected during the outbreak of what was going to be avian flu because of the similarities between these subtypes of hemagglutination and neuraminidase, right? Whoever was alive, thank you very much, I would have been protected. You probably all would have died in the great avian bird white mass extinction of the human species. I'd be around, so nature would have done its job. For you as individuals, oh well, sucks to be you, but for me as an individual, I would have won that lottery. So. Right? A lot of this interaction. So this avian flu would have been similar to the flu that was around in 1968. Right? So we have all of these sort of things taking place. So when you go, right, when you are going to CVS to get your flu shot, that flu shot was thought about probably nine or ten months ago. So every spring, probably late winter, people from the CDC, right, we've talked about the CD4, CDC before, the Centers for Disease Control, and other public service you know, sort of investigators out in other places of the world, they're going to go to Southeast Asia. 
and they're going to sample, right, whatever they're going to sample. I'm not up on their sampling techniques, but they'll probably sample birds and pigs and water and a whole bunch of things, and they're going to make a guess. And their guess is going to be that this virus that we're finding right now, right, so they'll be there in the spring of 20, this is 2012, they'll be there in the spring of 2013. And they'll walk around and they'll gather up everything they're going to gather up and they'll analyze all their samples. There'll be some phone calls, there'll be some emails back and forth, and they will come to the conclusion that in the fall of 2013, this is going to be the virus that's going to be influenza. This is going to be the virus that's going to cause flu season in the United States and Europe and any other place in the country. So they're going to call up their partners who are going to develop vaccines, and they're going to say, Okay, folks, this is the vaccine that we need. Start making, I don't know, a million doses. Start it up, because we need these vaccines. These vaccines have got to be at CVS by November 1st, 2013. So they're making a guess. Sometimes, or most of the time, they get it right. Sometimes, they guessed wrong. And this happened three years ago. Remember when there were all the talk around, oh, the flu shot isn't a very effective this year, right? There was some sort of mistake. People thought that they made the wrong thing. They, no, I mean, it, they just got it wrong, right? All the data back in 2000, during the spring of 2011 or whatever it was, sort of came to the conclusion that this was going to be the influenza that's going to be able to come, and it didn't. A different strain came. So in general, the flu shot of that year did nothing against the influenza outbreak. But right, you can only right, you can only use your methods, and sometimes you're just going to guess wrong, right? So usually it's going to be able to be okay. In terms of antigenic shift, we know a lot more about it. So now we have a new reservoir. So the new, the new mixing reservoir could be people. So different viruses from people, if they're mixing and matching, they can go out and they can infect chickens and it can infect cats and tigers and seals and cows and whales and pigs. Right? So we're getting more and more information about other mammals. Right? These are all mammals. Right? Other mammals that can be infected by the virus themselves. So now it appears that even humans can serve as this mixing vessel itself. Next up on our hit parade, bacteria. And this is what we've been talking about in general throughout the, the, the time of the course. Right? So most bacterial infections are going to be maintained and contained by antibodies. Right? And phagocytosis, the antibodies are going to act as opsins and complement molecules will act as opsins, right? So phagocytosis, antibodies, and complement right, are basically able to contain most bacterial infections themselves. Okay. No. So again, right, this is sort of the cartoon that we've been looking at. Right? Some sort of bacteria are going to make their way in. This was, when we were looking at this before, this was our splinter. 
Bacteria come in, everything we talked about in terms of increased vascular permeability, cells making their way into the tissue spaces, right? antibodies being developed, complement molecules coming in, other sort of cytotoxic molecules coming in, right? general sort of things that we've been talking about. In terms of bacterial infections, right? some of the more common ones, diphtheria, right? diphtheria infects the superficial layers of the respiratory mucosa, the organism itself causes little tissue damage with only mild inflammation. The virulence is totally dependent on the exotoxin that it secretes. Remember when we talked about vaccine development, we talked about certain organisms that can right, cause havoc, not by the organism itself, but by some of the products that it secretes, and the exotoxin from diphtheria is one of those. Right? That exotoxin can do damage to the heart and the liver and the kidneys themselves. And the toxin is a protein synthesis inhibitor. It's going to be able to enter the cells and destroy the cells by inhibiting protein synthesis. So diphtheria is one of those major infectious diseases themselves. And then the other one, the other biggie that we worry about that we thought we had under control is tuberculosis, right? Mycobacterium tuberculosis. It's a mycobacteria. It's not a regular bacteria. It's a mycobacteria. And mycobacteria are a little bit harder to uh, the immune system to be able to destroy because on their cell wall, on their outer surfaces, they have almost a, a, a harder external surface, right? It's almost right, like agar on the external surface. So antibodies don't bind very well right, to the tuberculosis organism itself. So we have a little more of a problem to be able to destroy it. So usually we, we rely on phagocytosis to be able to destroy mycobacteria, right? Tuberculosis is a leading cause of death worldwide by any single infectious agent. At any one point in time, a third to a half of the world's population is going to be infected with tuberculosis. It's going to account for about 18% of all deaths across the world. There was a point in time where we thought we had the tuberculosis bacteria under control, right? the same way we were in the process of eliminating smallpox and the same way we were in the process of eliminating right, right now polio, we were doing the same thing for tuberculosis. Right? We were giving antibiotics and tuberculosis was on the retreat. Same with diphtheria. Diphtheria was on the retreat as well. But things started to take place, and one of the major things that took place was the downfall of the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union sort of dissolved, I don't want to say it fell, when the Soviet Union dissolved, it sort of hindered the public health system right, in all the countries of the Soviet Union, and that once the public health system fell apart, patients weren't getting antibiotics anymore, so patients stopped taking antibiotics, right? And we could, again, we could give a whole, we could talk a whole lecture about antibiotic resistance, right? And antibiotic resistance, there's a lot of reasons why antibiotics aren't working anymore, right? Maybe one of the major reasons is we give antibiotics to everything and we eat antibiotics all the time. Now, I'm not sort of one of those whole food sort of advocates, but, right, every 
probably every glass of milk we take has extra antibiotics in it, and every right chicken sandwich when we go to KFC probably has lots of antibiotics in it, and every time you go to McDonald's and have a hamburger, there's probably lots of antibiotics, right, from those cows, because right, those agribusiness places have to protect the cows, they've got to protect the chickens, right, for every chicken that dies. Right? is sort of a, goes against their bottom line of making a profit, so anything they can do to keep all the chickens alive, so they're sort of full of antibiotics. But the problem is that if you don't take your entire dose of antibiotics, right, when you go to the doctor, the doctor always says, if you don't do anything else, just take every single antibiotic that we give you. Right? Because what can take place is in the course of treating of the bacterial infection, if you don't suppress every single bacteria and kill every single bacteria, some of those bacteria might right, develop a resistance. If you would have continued to take your antibiotics for the full course, for the full week, right, then you would have destroyed all those bacteria inside. But most people, oh, I feel much better now. Oh, I'm, I'm cured. I don't have to take my antibiotics anymore. Right? So that's what can take place in terms of antibiotic resistance. So the same thing happened here. Right? So now we have a lot of drug-resistant tuberculosis. The organism itself lives inside macrophages as macrophages undergo phagocytosis. We talked about this as a facultative parasite. Right? They're able to live inside the macrophage. A tissue damage right, is going to happen by the activity of T cells trying to get rid of the, of the mycobacteria itself. We're going to form what's called a tubercle. Right? That's where tuberculosis comes from. It's a walling off of cells inside the lungs. Right? I'm going to skip past this one. We'll talk about a tubercle here for a second. So if we can't destroy it by phagocytosis, we're going to try to wall it off. Right? It's called a granuloma. So inside are the bacteria themselves. They're surrounded by macrophages. They're surrounded by T cells. Right? And we're trying to contain this, so we're trying to wall it off. Right? The, the ability to make a granuloma is an evolutionarily conserved host defense response. Insects use the formation of granulomas all over the place to get rid of invaders inside insect bodies. Right? So the idea here is we're just going to try to contain it. But what can happen is that if we can't contain it, and as this starts to build up and build up and build up, right, it's going to make more and more and more mycobacteria in the center here until this eventually bursts open and then they're going to infect other cells inside the lungs since this is where most of the organisms are going to reside right? and your lungs can start to form more and more tubercles right? you're going to get into breathing problems and people are going to be able to die from other complications rather than the bacteria itself the lesions are going to eventually rupture lytic enzymes are going to spill out so when you inhale and you bring the mycobacteria inside, they can't be destroyed, so they're going to be start to be walled off right, by the macrophages themselves. Even blood vessels can start to right, angiogenesis can take place, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Right? And we make these tubercles until eventually it can burst, right? and then all those mycobacteria can get out and start to infect other areas inside the lung. So these are some of the major sort of bacterial infections that can, in, that infectious diseases are going to be able to take place. Right? Parasites themselves, the number three 
right? Sort of major infectious disease we have to worry about. No, we're doing pretty good. The humoral response can usually take care of parasites when the organism is in the bloodstream, when antibodies can be generated to recognize right, the parasite itself. Antibodies are going to be able to bind to it, going to prevent the parasite from entering cells that it needs to enter right, by coating the bacteria in antibody, in antibody molecules. Complement molecules are going to be able to take place. Cell-mediated responses, right, when the organisms are intracellular, right, we're going to be able to try to come in and take place. We're going to call them broadly called parasitic diseases, and parasitic diseases, the umbrella term is just a parasite. It contains both protozoans, right, those single cell organisms, and helminths. And helminths are the type of worm, right, the multicellular worm that are usually parasites in mammals themselves, right? When your dog gets roundworm, you have to bring your dog, right? The major sort of disease in this, in terms of looking at protozoan diseases, is malaria. And malaria are caused by several species of the protozoan, right? A bunch of different spe uh, individual species in the class of Plasmodium, with Plasmodium falsipicarum is the most common and virulent form of the organism itself. 10% of the world's population is infected right, with malarial organisms. Right? Malaria is a very right, bad disease. It's very hard to get rid of. I can remember as an undergraduate, right, when I was taking my science courses, I can remember individuals talking about how they were real close to developing right, effective treatments against the malarial parasites. And I was, in, I was an undergraduate in 19, a long time ago. <laughs> and they're still working on vaccines against malaria. And every couple of years, every five or six years, we got a good vaccine candidate now, right? We got a good reason why we think this vaccine is going to work. <coughs> they bring it out into the field. <coughs> it dies. It doesn't work very well. But they are getting close. At least I'm an optimist, right? The glass is always half full. I read all those papers, and they are getting really close. So what's the problem with malaria? The problem with malaria is, first of all, it uses an insect vector as part of its life cycle. So when we were out there, and before 1968, malaria wasn't much of a problem. Right? So what happened in 1968? Where's all my ecologists in the class? A book was published, right? Silent Spring. Talked about how bad DDT was. Right? It was killing birds. It was doing everything. So they used to be great, right, sort of public service sort of, you know, campaigns using lots and lots of DDT to get rid of Right, insects. The Anopheles mosquito in Africa, right, was being destroyed by DDT. Once Solid Spring came out, people said, ooh, that's not good, right? DDT is having effects where we don't need to have effects. Now, not that I'm saying we should use DDT again, but that was one of the reasons. All right? So, the organism itself, multifaceted, multi-organ lifestyle. There's a low immune response. 
And the problem with getting a vaccine is we have several maturational changes in the life cycle of the organism itself. So some of the time, the life cycle is in the blood, and that's the sporozoite stage. And then sometimes the life cycle, once it leaves the blood, it infects red blood cells. Once it leaves the red blood cells, it makes its way and it starts to infect liver and other red blood cells. That's the mirozoite stage. So how do you make your vaccine? Do you make it against the sporozoite stage or the mirozoite stage? If you make it against the sporozoite change, you can't control the mirozoites. If you make it against the mirozoites, you can't, and you can't, you know, control the sporozoites. If you make it against both, right, there could be a shift. We'll talk about antigenic shift and malaria, right? So the organism is only going to be accessible in the bloodstream, and that's only going to be for a small amount of time. Yeah? Because there's something about the shape of the sickle cell that prevents right, either the sporocyte or the merozoite from getting into the red blood cell. Okay? There's some change. So that it is thought evolutionarily speaking, diseases like thalassemia and sickle cell anemia are a response to the malarial parasite. So even though, right, with sickle cell and thalassemia, we're going to get sick, we're not going right, to be able to breathe as well, we're not going to die from malaria. Right? So there's a lot of work at looking at that as well. Right? So, they're only accessible in the bloodstream for a very short amount of time. So when you get bit inside the mosquito gut, right, is the development of the organism itself. Sporozoites make their way to the liver. Merozoites make their way to the red blood cells. Right? When they burst, they're going to make, right, they're going to mate and make new, and they're going to go back into the mosquito. This is what's happening and showing what's taking place over there in a little bit more detail. Right? This is the, the sex cells themselves and the development that's going to be able to take place. The other thing that these organisms can do as well are more antigenic shifts. So we can get variant number one, and this is the time after the mosquito bite. So this is in weeks. So we can see these waves of parasitemia. So when you hear about malarial, uh, uh, malarial patients, right, they'll get very sick. Right? They'll have a fever. They'll be very sick for a while, and then nothing will take place. Then they'll be sick for a while, and then nothing. And then sick, and then nothing, and sick. And these are these spikes that are taking place. Right? So the fever and everything comes from the inflammatory response. We're knocking out this. We come back. This sort of emerges. We knock that out. We get more fever, we knock it out, we get more fever, we knock it out, we get more fever, we knock it out. Right? So all of these things can take place during a malarial infection itself. Oh, I guess we're stopping. We'll talk about worms on Monday. All right, so we'll talk about worms on Monday. Have a good weekend.